Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we have reveled this morning in this beautiful worship, so wonderfully presented to us. We are asking for the believing family of the country of Ukraine, and we're asking this morning that you would be with them and that you would bring an end to this awful situation and that you would make us deeply conscious of the reality that our times, the times of this world are in your hands and that somehow this fits into the picture that Jesus presented at the end of his ministry. And we pray, Father, that you would make us uh, so conscious of the need to be ready and to be at our post when the inspection comes. And we'll thank you in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, it's good to be at Auburn this morning, and uh, those of you who are watching online, wonderful that you're joining us as well. Uh, the scripture was very wonderfully read for us from Luke chapter 23, and the outline of the message was distributed by email, which again, thank you for doing that, staff here at Auburn. And uh, again, a word of thanks uh, for the worship team this morning. You are, I have been, I think it's now 38 churches that I have now uh, spoken in since my retirement in 2016. And Auburn's worship is in the top one or two. I hope you folks realize that. Uh, you are very, very blessed with outstanding musicians. Thank you for your music this morning. In the summer of 1978, I was employed as a summer student at the Kawartha Lakes Training School in Lindsay, Ontario, a school for young offenders. On a warm, sunny July day, we received a visit from one of the constables in the OPP detachment in Lindsay. The fact that the OPP was at the training school was not unusual. What was unusual was the request that the officer had. There had been a break-in in the town of Lindsay the night before, and an arrest had been made. The next step in the investigation was for the witnesses to view a police lineup. The suspect was male and about my age, 23 at that time, so the request was, would I be willing to be one of several others who, along with the suspect, would be in a police lineup? Always ready for an adventure at that time in my life, not so much now, I said, sure, I'll do it. So I did. When I arrived at the police station, I and the rest of the volunteers were instructed as to what would take place. Just shortly after, the suspect was put in the lineup and the first witness was brought in. As I remember, the first witness picked the right person. The second witness was brought in. We all had a, a number in front of us. Guess what happened? My number, number three, was the one that the witness called. I can't describe exactly the emotion that I felt at that moment. It wasn't me. I was at my parents' home in Uxbridge last night. 
For just that moment, I felt what it must feel like to hear your number called and know that you are not the one who perpetrated the crime. But there is another moment in human history in which a man stood in a police lineup, so to speak. He had been wrongfully accused and convicted. But rather than going free as I did that day in Lindsay, Jesus Christ allowed himself to be crucified by lawless and evil men. The historical account of the miscarriage of justice is recorded by four historians of the first century. The first was a man named Matthew. He was a former tax collector for the Roman government who later became a disciple of Jesus. He was an eyewitness. He was at the cross that day. Mark was the second eyewitness, second historian. He was a first cousin of one of the disciples, Peter. And we believe that Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel, that Peter is the primary source for the gospel according to St. Mark. The third historian was a man named Luke. He was a medical doctor who accompanied St. Paul, the first missionary to the Gentiles. And we know from his gospel that he did careful, careful research in order to determine exactly what had taken place as he identifies both in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The fourth eyewitness, the fourth person was also an eyewitness, and the fourth was a historian named John. He was another disciple who became the guardian of Mary, the mother of Jesus, after Jesus' death. He, too, stood at the foot of the cross that day. In the combined records of the events of early A.D. 28, they report, the four historians, that while Jesus of Nazareth was hanging from a Roman cross, after the nails had been driven through his hands and, and his feet, so that he could be suspended at least ten feet from the ground, Jesus spoke seven times. And those seven sayings are the most important part of the entire narrative around the cross. We, we, we see when someone's dying that we love, we, we hang on to what those last words were. Here, Jesus, as recorded by these four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spoke seven times. The first saying Jesus utters appears to have been said just as soon as the cross had been pushed into an upright position and its base inserted into the ground. There on the cross, suspended above earth, placed between two thieves, the Christ of God, who had never done anything deserving death, said his first saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Just imagine, at the moment when Jesus says these words, he has just been nailed to a cross as punishment for a crime he had not committed with the power to come down from that cross. And the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them. We are jarred by those words. We don't expect them because we live in a world where forgiveness is virtually unknown. We just hope under our breath, of course, 
that they get it back. Contrast that attitude with the first words that Jesus says after being unjustly tried, sentenced, and now nailed to the cross. Father, forgive them. With 10,000 angels waiting in the wings, ready to come and take him down from that cross. But listen to the rest of what Jesus says. For they do not know what they are doing. To whom is Jesus referring? Who's they in this sentence? When I was in pastoral ministry, I, I would have someone come to me with an issue that they were trying to work through. And, and often I would hear this, hear this word, they. And often I would have to say, you know, I can't help you unless you identify the they here. We, we can't deal with this issue unless we come right out and say, what is it and who's involved? It's kind of like that situation here. Who's they? Well, the first person on the list has got to be Judas. For, for sure, Judas is on the list. Judas the betrayer. The political climber. He was sure Jesus was the Messiah, only Judas was locked into a view of the Messiah that made Jesus a political Messiah and not a spiritual Messiah. He, 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 he believed Jesus was the Messiah. But a Jewish Messiah would liberate the Jewish people from this Roman occupation. Judas never intended for Jesus to die that day. Yet when the events of those hours were over, Jesus would be dead. Father, Forgive Judas, because he did not know who I really was. Well, Pilate, he's got to be on the list for sure. Pilate, the epitome of a spineless person, the ultimate coward, the one who traded a man who he knew was innocent, and very clearly knew he was innocent. Even his wife told him that Jesus was innocent. He traded a man who he knew was innocent for political expediency and power. Does that sound familiar in the world in which we live? Political expediency and power. Father, Forgive Pilate, because if he really knew who I was, he would not be doing this. Well, there's another group that we have to talk about on this list of these, this fickle mob, the mob that just five days previously had shouted at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now listen to them. Crucify him. Crucify him. Father, 
Forgive these people because they don't really know what they're doing. Well, there's the list that's obvious. Judas, Pilate, the mob. That's it. No, it isn't. It isn't it. There's one more group of people that we've got to add to that list. The list of participants in the greatest tragedy in human history goes like this. Judas, Pilate, the mob, you, and I. Well, why us? We weren't there. Well, yes, we were there. Because sin is sin. We were there because we are sinners too. Judas' nasty ambition, Pilate's cowardice, the mob's fickleness, those sins and more are our sins too. St. Paul says, Romans chapter 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, yes, you were there, and so was I. It's the rejection of the concept of sin in our generation that has removed the significance and power of the cross of Christ. If there's no sin, then you don't need a Savior. And it's my fear that that cultural encroaching may be happening in the church, in the community of the King as well. We, we've got to talk about sin, folks. Because it's real. It's destroying people's lives. And it's sin that's at the base of what needs to be fixed in our world. Father, forgive every human being whose sins have nailed me here, even those who stand not at the foot of this cross, but at the foot of of human history. But I hear your complaint. It's mine too. Our response to this incredible first saying from the cross that Jesus utters is, those are not the words of a human being. No human being could say those words in such a circumstance. You're right. Those are the words of the God-man. The one who the ancient creeds describe as being very God of very God, very man of very man. And when we forgive, we are doing something that is not possible purely in our humanity. When we forgive, 
we are in fact reaching into the divine, into the very character and nature of God, and bringing something which only God possesses into our humanity. We even have a way of saying it, a truism in our culture. We say, to err is human, to forgive, divine. So how is it possible for us to be like Jesus, to be a forgiving people? Only one way. By trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and then allowing Him to enter my life so that I may be like Him. To be and to become. By being forgiven so that I have the capacity to forgive. We say it in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiveness cleanses. It cleans the wounds of our lives like warm water over a child's skinned knee. Forgiveness liberates. It releases us from the hold of the past that would destroy our future. I, I don't think we fully grasp that sometimes, that until we forgive, we are completely in bondage to the past, and it, and, and it, it skews our future. We deal with the past, we deal with it in a healthy way, we do the forgiving that needs to be forgiven, and that allows us to move forward. Forgiveness restores. It brings new life into relationships that would otherwise be ruined. Once uh, General Oglethorpe, the founder of what is now the state of Georgia, remarked to John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley in 1737 came to Georgia as a missionary at the invitation of General Oglethorpe. It was a total disaster in terms of what resulted from that missionary expedition. In fact, it became part of the way in which John Wesley came to the conclusion that he, that he needed forgiveness himself, that he had never experienced forgiveness, even though he was a, a long, long, long established uh, Anglican priest at that point in his life. So this is previous to his conversion, what we would call his evangelical conversion, that this conversation uh, took place. General Oglethorpe says to John Wesley, I never forgive. To which John Wesley responded, Then I hope, sir, you never sin. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Well, you wouldn't really believe that the Globe and Mail would be the source of one of the best pieces of writing I've ever read on the nature of the crucifixion. But in fact, it is. It's a column by Michael Valpe, now retired Global Mail columnist, in which he does some beautiful, beautiful historical work 
on the nature of what our Lord Jesus went through that day. I'm going to read you part of that column. Michael Valpe, The Globe and Mail. A savage animal, the human. For a thousand years, from the 6th century B.C. to the 4th century A.D., crucifixion was an important method of capital punishment, particularly among the Persians, Seleucids, Jews, Carthaginians, and Romans. The Romans liked doing it. They used crucifixion first as the extreme punishment for slaves. Then they extended it to all people who could not prove Roman citizenship. Then it was extended once more from A.D. 68 onwards to the lower, lower orders of Roman citizens. The condemned person was first whipped. Then he was forced to drag the crossbeam of his cross to the place of punishment where the upright shaft was already stuck in the ground. He was stripped naked. His hands were either bound to the crossbar or nailed firmly through the wrists. The crossbar was then raised against the upright shaft and fastened about 10 feet above the ground. The man's feet were tightly bound or nailed to the shaft. A ledge was inserted about halfway up the shaft to give some support to the body. Rarely was a second ledge put under the feet. Over the person's head was placed a notice stating his name and offense. Death was by, caused by exhaustion or heart failure. It could be hastened, according to expert sources, by shattering the legs with an iron club, bringing on shock. Human beings did that for a thousand years. The creeds of the early church make no mention, Michael Valpi writes, of Jesus' teaching, no mention of the ethical precepts he gave to humankind, no mention of any of the things he did that made him a moral force. Everything is about his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Friends in Christ this morning, there are many reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is God and that the Christian faith is true. One of the most compelling, in fact, perhaps the most compelling, is what our Lord said seven times he spoke from the cross as he was dying. A man who had never done anything wrong, who the epistle says knew no sin, in the moment that his hands were nailed to a Roman cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Only God 
would say that. Only Jesus Christ did say that. And it is on the basis of what he has done for us on that cross, not of works, so that no one can boast, that we find forgiveness and the capacity to forgive at the foot of that cross. Let's pray. We gloss over these words when we read them, Jesus, but how significant they are. It is the cross that makes the difference in your story. Yes, your teachings are wonderful and we need them, especially in the day in which we live. But it is your death on the cross and your resurrection from the grave that forms the basis of the truth, the veracity of the Christian faith. As we live in this season that leads up to the cross and to Easter, renew our faith in you by receiving anew and afresh the forgiveness that you offer. And then, Lord, having received that forgiveness, let us offer it as well. Be with us, we pray, as we live our lives in a broken and troubled world. And help us to be light in the darkness. Help us to be a city set on a hill. May it be the case that our witness will also bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And we'll thank you in your precious holy name. Amen.